The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and as a critic of all thoughts and intents of the heart. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Once again, open the word of truth to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we are about to begin the final, uh, well, we'll clean up slightly the, the penultimate, but then also the uh, start discussing the final qualification for overseers, for pastor teachers. So we dealt with the preliminaries of, of he must not be a recent convert, but we need to say a few words about uh, the second clause of verse 6, the second phrase. Or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. The judgment of the devil refers to before the dawn of human history when Satan, Lucifer, and one-third of the angels that God created fell. This began the angelic conflict. Human history is, the, is Satan's appeal of the angelic conflict. That's the reason that we're here, uh, is because Satan challenged God and his character as a result of him being sentenced to the lake of fire for all eternity. The saying, of course, goes that pride goeth before the fall, and it's absolutely true, and it is derived from Satan himself, who desired to be like God. The Old Testament describes this. It says he desired to be like God himself. He wanted to make himself like God. Why is God any different than us? I will be like God. And he tried to sort of usurp some of God's authority. So God sentenced him and one-third of, his, one-third of the angels, which were his followers, Uh, to the lake of fire. He sentenced them to hell. Satan appealed that decision, and that is what created, uh, ultimately led to the creation of humankind. The notion here about being conceited and falling, falling under the same judgment as the devil primarily refers to the false teachers. These qualifications are here because Paul is describing to Timothy how to not become like a false teacher, how to not be a false teacher himself. So Paul says a few words here around the false teachers because the false teachers are conceited, uh, and even though they are believers, they will be held accountable for their sins. It's very hard for a lot of believers to grasp the fact that there are believing false teachers. Uh, the people who believed, going back to the first service this morning when I was discussing briefly lordship salvation, the people who believe in lordship salvation believe that a Christian has to demonstrate his salvation for a sufficient amount of time in order to be truly saved. And if his behavior isn't you know, living up to God's standards... <clears throat> They would surmise, well, maybe he wasn't saved, she wasn't saved in the first place. So they need to have a, you know, a, a bigger kind of faith moment and then demonstrate that salvation with uh, all these other things. 
Excuse me. Need a little voice restore there. They needed to, right, prove their salvation through uh, their good works, through their behavior. That is not the case. If someone believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they believe so in in a bona fide manner, if they truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what their behavior is. They are always saved. Lordship salvation, even though they may ostensibly agree with the doctrine of eternal security, lordship salvation fundamentally denies the truth of eternal security, meaning once saved, always saved. If you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you, for the rest of your life, lived in a manner totally unbecoming of the maturing Christian, in a total lack of godliness, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, you are still a believer. You might not be a spiritual believer or a spirit-filled believer, but you are a believer nonetheless. Godliness is about sanctification, not salvation. So it's very hard for people to understand that the false teachers described in 1 Timothy uh, chapters 1, really chapters 1 through 6, all six chapters of 1 Timothy, it's one of the primary themes, but these are believers that Paul is addressing. So when he discusses falling under the same judgment as the devil, it's not referring to their salvation. It's referring to the consequences of their actions, the consequences of their false teaching. And it starts from a standpoint of being conceited, of being prideful. False teachers desire accolades and recognition themselves. They hoard that. Just as the materialist hoards material possessions, just as the one who is addicted to lust hoards physical experiences of pleasure, uh, just as drug addicts... uh, you know, crave the, the rush and high of, of whatever substance they consume. False teachers crave attention. They crave it more than anything in the world. And that produces the same type of fall that Satan had before the dawn of human history. So that's all that is meant here. He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. So he needs to be a mature enough believer that he can sustain the temptations that come with being a pastor teacher so that he might not be uh, filled with conceit, filled with pride as he stands before a congregation and teaches them thinking that, oh, I'm so important, I'm this, that, and the other, I'm, you know, puffing my head up uh, like a blowfish because of all the accolades and the awards I'm getting and all the attention that I receive because I'm a pastor. That's not the case. But it is the temptation for very, very many pastors. Really, it's the temptation for all pastors. My point is that many pastors fall into that temptation and become conceited and therefore become like uh, th- that Satan fall from, from, from grace experience. It doesn't mean that they become demonic. It means, think back to our study of reversionism. Uh, the reversionistic believer, the reversionistic false teacher, uh, and essentially, if you, if you don't know, reversionism simply describes the carnal or the sin-filled believer who, who 
does not go through the grace provision of spiritual recovery for an extended period of time, and they go down this downward spiral of reversionism, meaning they revert to their prior way of life. They are believers, but they behave as if they were unbelievers. It's not to say that they are demonic or that they lose their salvation, but they function, they function as followers of the cosmic system. They function as unbelievers. They are a believer, but they do not live their life in accordance with their Christian values. They don't cease to be a Christian. They don't cease to uh, be a believer. They just cease to be a spirit-filled believer. So they go into uh, this reversionistic cycle, and they function as uh, a, a steward of uh, Satan's demonic viewpoint in the cosmic system, in, uh, as, as he approaches mankind. So it doesn't have anything to do with their salvation. They are still believers. But what motivates them is the personal accolades, the personal advancement. What motivates them, in short, is their own pride. And you may not know, uh, you know, a, a, a prideful false teacher, but you surely know very many prideful people who are far too confident in their own abilities and far too uh, self-absorbed in whatever uh, position of power that they have placed themselves uh, in. And, and it could be the the smallest, uh, you know, amount of authority possible. You know, I'm sure there are, you know, managers of McDonald's establishments that are the most prideful people in the world, like more prideful than presidents and kings, uh, because they're in charge of, you know, it's my way or the highway, and I run this restaurant, etc. It doesn't matter how much power people have. It matters their mindset. Uh, so you know prideful people, and you can surely apply this to their situations, and they're motivated by conceit. They're motivated by self-advancement, and they are completely self-absorbed. Okay, so that takes care of not being a recent convert. Let's move on to the next verse. Verse 7. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Outsiders. What does Paul mean by outsiders? He's referring to spiritual outsiders, meaning unbelievers. He must have a good reputation with he must be thought of well by unbelievers so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. You don't want a pastor who has a terrible relationship with anyone who is not a Christian because the devil will use that and expose him for you know, being an unchrist-like behavior, and that will be exposed broadly speaking. You don't want that to be the case for a pastor, you want him to have a good reputation with outsiders, a good reputation with unbelievers. This does not mean, and this is important, it does not mean that he accepts the value system of unbelievers, of outsiders. What this means essentially is that he is not combative 
for the sake of being combative. He is not motivated by being right. To going back to quarrelsome and, and not violent but gentle, those qualifications on our discussions pertaining thereto. He is not just combative and picking fights with unbelievers, rhetorical or otherwise, because he he needs to. He doesn't view that it's his role uh, to be filled with those types of disputes. So what does this mean at a more specific level? Point one, the pastor teacher or maturing believer has a peaceable disposition with an unbelieving world. The pastor, teacher, or maturing believer has a peaceable disposition with an unbelieving world. Secondly, he picks his battles wisely, seeking in all outward-facing discussions to bring people to Christ. Again, he picks his battles wisely, seeking in all outward-facing discussions to bring people to Christ. This is something that you need to be mindful of as a believer. If you're with a group of people who don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, or you don't know uh, whether or not they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is not an environment where you want to get in an argument about politics. All right? If you are known as, if you're trying to be known as the maturing believer in that group or with amongst your family members or your friends or your coworkers, it's not wise to get in, you know, politics just being one example, but being an example that I think many of us can relate to. We've all been in those types of disagreements. Uh, it's not the time to get into those types of rhetorical disputes. Because you don't want to create dissonance in someone's thinking where they say, okay, to be a Christian, I have to believe what this person believes about politics or the state of the world or whatever the case may be, whatever the disagreement is. Does this mean you can't have discussions about politics? Uh, no, you can certainly have discussions uh, about politics. You can certainly have debates about politics, but you need to keep them civil and polite and in all things, when you're dealing with unbelievers, point them to divine truth as the overriding objective. Like, like I stated, in all outward-facing discussions, meaning discussions with unbelievers, the goal is bringing people to Christ, not being right in an argument. So you need to understand who is around you when you say things. You know, you can, if you want to, you know, talk politics and you're with, you know, a close-knit circle and you're all believers and you, you want to have those discussions, that's fine. You can have those discussions then. But be mindful of, uh, you know, other people that can overhear you. Be mindful of what you say. Uh, and when you're in, call it mixed company, when you're around unbelievers, keep 
the discussion centered around uh, what truly matters in this world. And as they you know, try to goad you into arguments around this issue or that issue, keep the focus on Christ. Does that mean you exclusively talk about the Lord Jesus Christ with unbelievers? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that when prompted, you witness for Christ as a believer. It does mean that you uh, display a level of integrity that impacts your speech. Uh, And you seek to bring people to Christ primarily. You're not combative for the sake of of being combative. You're not trying to be right in an argument. So point three... He does not attract attention to himself, but gives all glory and honor to the Lord. He does not attract attention to himself, but he gives all glory and honor to the Lord. That's where glory and honor belongs. He has a good reputation with outsiders. Other translations say he is thought of well by outsiders. Oh, I know Joe. I know that, uh, that, that Christian man. I know that Christian woman. Uh, what's the next thing out of that person's uh, mouth it is ultimately the question. You know, uh, if they know that you're a Christian, are they going to say next, based on your actions, oh, he's a tyrant, uh, she's prideful, Uh, He's a drunk. You know, what's that next thing out of the unbeliever's mouth when they're describing you? You know, oh, he's a a ruthless boss. I mean, you make one mistake and he is all over you. That's not how you want to be known by unbelievers. You want them to say, oh, I know Joe. He's He's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's a family man. He cares about me as a person. There's this great story. I don't know if you know the name Penn Gillette. He's like a magician guy. Uh, he's one of the those you know uh, tricksters. The funny thing about him is he goes through and explains as he's doing magic how, how it works. And he's showing you the sleight of hand right before your eyes. It's a funny thing to, to witness. But he's a very well-known atheist. And he described meeting a, a stranger to him, and he had given him a really nice leather-bound Bible, knew that uh, Penn was an atheist, but you know, said, I, I want you to have this. Uh, this is uh, you know, very important to me uh, that you uh, read the Bible, that you study these things. Uh, and I, I just wanted to give this to you. He had it engraved with his name. It was, it was, you know, it was a gift. It was a nice gift. And Penn tells this story. Uh, he d- describes this encounter, and he says, ultimately, he wished all Christians were like that, not being judgmental, but were pointing people to the Bible and to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said it was a very profound experience uh, where he was, you know, it didn't change his thinking, but it, it, was an, it was an enjoyable interaction with 
and a, a believer. And it left him with a positive impression. He said, okay, maybe I will read the Bible. So I, I don't know how that story ends, but this is the type of interaction that is being described here. You know, I, I know that uh, Christian, you know, blank comes out of their out of their mouth next. That is what is being depicted. So point four. Unbelievers are always welcome in his church should they want to hear sound biblical instruction. Unbelievers are always welcome in his church should they want to hear sound biblical instruction. And that's true of this church, right? Unbelievers are always welcome in this church, regardless of their viewpoint, regardless of what they think, regardless of uh, if they agree with us or disagree with us, they are always welcome if they want to hear biblical instruction. If they don't, uh, you know, they, no one's forcing them to be here, and they don't have to return uh, after, uh, you know, more than one uh, service. They can leave at halftime and never be heard from again. But they are always welcome. There's not any kind of test before uh, people enter these doors. People are always welcome, regardless of who they are, regardless of if we agree with their approach in life, regardless of any uh, human descriptor. They are always welcome, and we seek to have a good relationship with an unbelieving world, with the unbelieving world. Uh, And unbelievers should know that this is a welcoming place for them. Make no mistake, church is for believers primarily. The church is not designed to be a let's win people to Christ sort of thing. That's a secondary objective. You'll notice that after every first service, the end of the first service, every week, I present the gospel for the purpose of anyone that's here or anyone that's listening at a later date, uh, being able to hear the gospel and understanding this is salvation, this is the path towards salvation, and uh, this is how what I need to do in order to be saved. It's very important. But the uh, the unbeliever is is regardless the unbeliever is always uh, welcome uh, here at, at Living Word Bible Church and I think that's important uh, and and they should have a positive impression of of uh, this church and of the Bible as a result of being at this church Living Word Bible Church this is a church that takes the Bible seriously it's in our name. But church primarily, again, is for believers. It's for the spiritual edification and spiritual advance of the believers in the congregation. So I think that's important to mention. So that concludes, uh, as, as long as we've been, I don't even know, we've been in, in, in the first few verses of chapter 3 for, for a, few, a few months at least, but that concludes the qualifications for overseers. This instruction that we have in godliness uh, before us. And hopefully that gives you a complete package of what it means to be a godly believer. 
We want to be remembered as godly believers, as godly men and godly women. And if you want those instructions in godliness, I mean, you can turn to any passage in the Bible, but you can turn here for the the quick hits list and all of the different applications that went into each of these uh, concepts. Above reproach, a one-woman man, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, managing his family well, not being a recent convert, and having a good reputation with unbelievers. That is the, the manual for godliness uh, for all people, for all believers but especially for the pastor teachers. And remember, the question is not, has he achieved this? It's, is this in character or out of character for him if he violates this? You know, if he's, if it's not in his character to be a lover of money and he goes on a spending spree, okay, well, he goes to 1 John 1, 9 and he recovers quickly. But if it's in his character, then we have more issues. Same for you, same for your character. And this is about godliness in the sense that all of us aspire together to fulfill these qualifications. So we will have more to say by way of of recap and review of the compendium of qualifications. And then we will move into the deacons, uh, the qualifications for deacons. I'll leave you with a little bit of a, a, a cliffhanger. So to get you thinking about what it means to be a deacon, you've heard the word deacon probably hundreds of times. Diakonos is the Greek, D-I-A-K-O-N-O-S. And the cliffhanger is this. Deacon, diakonos, literally means humble servant. A deacon is a humble servant. So we'll have more to say by way of review, and then we will get into the qualifications for uh, deacons starting next Sunday after communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for all of the ways in which you have given us application for our daily lives through these qualifications. Please enable us to live godly lives But godly lives, Heavenly Father, that start from learning your word and applying it to our daily lives so that we can pursue your plan for our life with all assertiveness so that we can move forward in love and in grace orientation and doctrinal orientation and authority orientation for all of these are the basis points for spiritual advance. For now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand faultless in his presence with great joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory, majesty, dominion, and power before all time and forever. Amen.